Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Bray. Something Positive for Positive People highlights the interconnectedness of sexual health and mental health. I interview everyone from professionals in the field of STD prevention and mental wellness, as well as people who have everyday lived experiences navigating the stigma of STIs, sex in general, as well as the challenges that come with any sort of mental health status change. Today's episode features someone who bridges the gap. You bridge, you bridge a lot of these intersections uh, based on the conversation that we had. I am going to allow for you to introduce yourself, Nina. Uh, can you start with your pronouns and then whatever you want us to know that you do? Yeah, my name is Nina and my pronouns are they, them. I am an artist. I am a sex worker. I'm a mental health counselor, um, and I'm someone who lives with chronic pain. Oh, I didn't know that fourth one. Wait, one, two, three. Was that four? I didn't know the last one. I didn't know that you, did we talk about chronic pain at all? We did, yeah. We talked a little bit about pain with sex. Ah, okay. And what was the word? It was, there's a name for it. What did you call it? P. Um, it's not, I'm not sure what word you're... Was it pelvic? It's not oh, pelvic inflammatory? Pelvic, I, have, I have been um, on a journey with pelvic pain for quite some time and have been misdiagnosed with several things, but um, really landed with pelvic congestion syndrome, which is actually a vascular condition in my pelvis. Okay. Can you, while we're here, tell me what your experience has been with healthcare providers in receiving that not diagnosis diagnosis uh i imagine that you've had to go to several people about your symptoms can you tell me a little bit about that particular journey before we get into what i wanted to ask you about sure um i think this is a a huge encyclopedia of of information um i've been dealing with chronic health issues for over a decade but this this issue specifically has been quite tumultuous. Um, There's a lot of medical misogyny. Um, You know, the condition that I have really isn't very well researched. And so when we come to doctors with pain, they're compartmentalizing us and looking at us under the lenses that they've been offered, right? So they know about endometriosis a little bit. Some people don't, don't, doctors don't at all. Um, So you really have to sort of find the specialty. It took me several years to get to the specialty that I needed to and several doctors who were very kind and saying that they don't think I had what they thought I had. So I was misdiagnosed with endometriosis for several years and I was pumped with hormones and um, I actually got a brain tumor from those hormones and went through uh, brain surgery as well as had a um, hysterectomy for this pain. And when they uh, did the pathology back on my uterus, it turns out that they could have treated me with antibiotics. I had a bacterial infection. And the reason why they don't check for that is because I presented with pain. Had I presented with wanting to have a child or had a partner and wanted to pump money into the system with IVF, they would have done a biopsy of my uterus. I could have afforded better care. 
Um, unfortunately, I couldn't, so I kind of landed where I did now. I was eventually able to get out of the OBGYN system and in with an interventional radiologist, and interventional radiologists are vein doctors. So I saw several that did not work for me. Finally, I landed on someone who was a great collaborator, and uh, they actually went in and put platinum coils in my veins to stop some of the reflux that was happening in there. Um, basically, all this old blood wasn't able to move because my veins were very dilated, and so my old blood was sitting in all my reproductive organs for many, 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 many years. Um, so eventually, I had that surgery done, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of it, I'm still dealing with symptoms, but not nearly uh, where I was at the beginning of my journey or throughout this journey. So, yeah, this is a, a very big encyclopedia to sort of open up. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely think that there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of things along the way I had to figure out for myself um, because these the support for people who have pain and situations like this just really isn't there. What I heard is that your value as someone who can produce a child was more valuable than someone who was just in pain. Uh, like what I hear is the doctor would have been more helpful or more willing to help even more had you presented with, I want to have a baby versus I have yeah. pain during sex. Absolutely. And that still continues because I still have pain and I can't track my ovulation because I don't have a uterus. And the only way I can track my ovulation is um, because I still have ovaries. I don't have a uterus. Um, the only way I can track that is by going through like hormone or like fertility. And because I don't have a uterus, I can't get insurance coverage and no doctor, fertility doctor will see me. So I have no way to even like manage the pain that I still have and get the care that I still need because, um, because I'm not going to have a, a baby. It's also, you know, it's more beneficial for the system in a lot of ways to keep me on birth control or to keep me on, you know, medications, um, than it is to, you know, cure or treating symptoms, not causes. Yeah, I'm learning that there's a lot of uh, sort of subscription-based medications that might even be what keep certain systems in place. One of those is what I originally, um, what you and I connected over, which was the yeah. daily antivirals for HSV. Now, this conversation, I don't want to just like skim past it, but this is a much more in-depth convo. I would love to connect you with someone who hosts a podcast on the topic of the treatment of queer people in healthcare. Yeah. If you're open, can I please connect yeah, you? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. All right, cool. Yeah, so, love, uh, love being connected. <laughs> all right, and then I'll try and link that here so that people can hear more of that story if they're interested. So you and I connected over a poll that I've been doing this entire, probably over the course of the last five days on Instagram, which is about antiviral use, the daily antiviral use, whether it be acyclovir, valcyclovir, and I think that uh, there's another one, femcyclovir. I don't know if this is new or what, but uh, I've been polling the Instagram following of at H on my chest, seeing what people are doing for treatment. So the question was just, do you take antivirals daily? And then another question was, 
uh, have you passed HSV on to a partner? And what I found interesting was that two thirds of people who aren't on antivirals uh, daily and two thirds of people have not passed herpes on to another partner. Now, there'd be a whole nother way to ask this question to find out how many people who don't take daily antivirals have not passed herpes on to a partner. And that's a much more in-depth study that will probably come in the future. But I found this to be really interesting uh, in a sense of how to go about disclosing uh, to say two thirds of people on this poll haven't passed herpes on to a past partner versus there's a 1% chance that you'll get herpes from me if I'm on daily antivirals and I, we wear condoms and we don't have sex while uh, I'm presenting prodome symptoms. Because to me, that 1% just says, all right, it's one out of 100. What? What is the one out of 100? One out of 100 times we have sex? One out of, one out of every 100 strokes? One out of every 100 skin contacts? What does this mean? We stop having sex at 99 in hopes that this one other time is not the one that presents uh, the, the exposure to you. So that's where you and I connected and you mentioned that you uh, were experiencing symptoms of psychosis as a result of taking daily medication. So uh, are you able to speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a really interesting conversation because we're having this conversation and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, you know what, I've had HSV-1 oral herpes almost my entire life. I mean, definitely my entire adult life. I've, I've had it since I was a very small child. I've had outbreaks and I've never thought about the statistics. Um, did I ever think about, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really engage when I, when I had like an open sore, but I wasn't really great about managing any scrotum symptoms. I went about my life pretty regularly and I didn't think about any of this and I never given or I've never passed on HSV to a partner in that way, orally or genitally. So I think it's really interesting that we're sort of having a conversation now that I have HSV2 genitally because it, it, it's it's the same thing. Um, right, it's, it's the same thing. It's just in a different location. So I, I just think it's really interesting that we're having these um, this discussion. And the way I used uh, medication previously was sort of when I had an outbreak, I would take the medication and then I would stop. So I would take it situationally. Um, I found that um, this is actually only my first year of um, having genital herpes outbreaks, though I'm not sure how long I've carried carried it. Um, and I've chosen to, to seek out treatment because um, my outbreaks seem to be related to my cycle. So um, I was having them very small and really insignificant to me, but it seemed like like this was the best thing for me to do for my sexual health and for the sexual health of others, just to manage this for maybe the first year or two. So I started on Valsiclovir, which I had taken before situationally, thought it would be just fine, right? And I spent about almost three months on this medication. And the first month I was like really feeling some weird symptoms like dry mouth, maybe a little bit of irritability. And you know, my doctor was like, just get through it to the other side. Um, you know, symptoms tend to sort of even out. Now me, with the knowing that I had sort of gotten bad things happened to me from medication in previous 
of situations have, you know, I'm, I'm very diligent about monitoring my symptoms and to make sure like, is this medication right for me? But, um, I didn't start to notice what was happening to me. And, um, you know, I let, I let another month go by and I was getting like, honestly, very, very, very irritated. And it wasn't until I had like a big outburst that I realized that I was actually not in an okay mental state because of this medication. Because when you're taking a medication every day, you're, you're just in this gradual sort of progression. And I live alone. I don't really have anybody that's waking up next to me every day saying, your mood seems different. So some, you know, I'm sort of just living my life as regular as I can. And I wound up having a silly kind of blow up with somebody outside uh, with our dogs, right? Something, some silly, somebody didn't leave the door open or something and somebody said something nasty. And then I just like went into this sort of manic psychosis state. I, I didn't wind up hurting anyone or anything, but I was certainly like had my own like mental breakdown in the hallway. <laughs> Um, and I wound up having a really bad, like, altercation with this person. We, we went our separate ways. Nothing, nothing too bad happened. But um, my doorman sort of, sort of witnessed it. And I was like, wow, like, you know, I had to go back, apologize to the doorman, uh, you know, all this Wait, other stuff. What, and I realized, you know, hey, I'm quick, so sorry, but, like. What's a doorman? Hmm? What's a doorman? Oh, I live in New York City. So I have a there's a doorman so there's somebody who like sits at the front desk and like there's like 30 floors in my oh, building and they I feel, like i, I need the, i need to edit that out so i need like, the, the fact that i asked that question i need to edit that out <laughs> <laughs> i cut your whole story off for that reason and i'm just like it, it was killing me i was like what is a doorman like where do you live where you have a butler do you mean a butler that's what i, I was thinking I I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so you you lashed out at the doorman. You lashed out at the doorman, who is not a butler. I'm sorry. I, right, right, right. I, I didn't necessarily lash out, but I was just like, what the fuck? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm to react people are going to tell you how things are going to make you feel but you really don't know until you get there 
um, and that you really have to make the best decision for you. I stopped that medication. No doctor suggested that I stop that medication. I stopped that medication and really sitting in our lived experience and trusting that because doctors can make us question our reality. Yeah. And as someone, I want to piggyback off of what you just shared. I'm someone who has been presented with stay away from this supplement, stay away from this food, don't eat this, don't do that. And I wanted to see for myself, is this a trigger for me? Uh, nuts, uh, peanut butter, uh, chocolate, and ar- arginine, arginine, I don't know how to say it, A-R-G-E-N-I-N-E. These were things that I would see people who are vocal in the herpes space say to stay away from. And I looked up and there's this arginine and stuff that I eat plenty of and then there's also like I've eaten peanut butter I can't tell you how many I put it in my oatmeal I hate peanut butter I hate bananas I hate oatmeal for whatever reason I can put all three of them together and it's tolerable so I've been able to do that on a regular consistent basis as well and then uh what was the other thing like almonds I'll eat plenty of almonds and like I'll eat nuts cashews there's not a problem drink cashew milk and if I were to have allowed for what I heard from other people's experiences and from whatever the research is that's out there and not have my own lived experience. Like I wouldn't have known that this, you know, there are exceptions to the rule, right? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, we do, there, there's a balance, right? I don't want to say everyone should do this thing. Everyone should do that thing. I think that if something isn't working for you, you have the right to be able to question it and challenge it in the way that works for you. If you're someone who heavily relies on your doctor and that's who's keeping you alive because you've been trying to do things on your own for so long that you don't trust yourself to uh, not depend on your doctor, please go to your doctor. If you're someone who has this gut feeling of, ah, that doesn't really sound right, get a second opinion. It doesn't hurt to, at the very least, get a second opinion. I'm not going to tell anybody on this podcast not to listen to your doctor, not to talk to your doctor, but I am going to encourage you to explore what's coming up for you with your intuition, with curiosity. Ask yourself, all right, why am I doing this? Why am I altering my life completely after receiving a diagnosis for something that I could have had for years? And now I'm making all of these drastic changes in my body simply because the internet says I shouldn't eat peanut butter anymore. And like I said, we don't know how long we've had it. Um, People who immediately uh, go on to antivirals from the poll, it seems like there's typically, um, I I would say three reasons that people go on daily antivirals, one of which is simply because their doctor said it. This was just a recommendation for you to go on to daily antivirals right away. The other reason is someone may have frequent reoccurring outbreaks. So take your antivirals. If this is helping, please do not stop taking your antivirals. And then the third reason is for partners, just to provide them with a level of comfort. Now, none of these have anything wrong with them. It's just a matter of understanding that this is your choice and why you're choosing to take the daily antivirals. Go ahead. Yeah, so I I think this is a really great uh, discussion to kind of move into because I was actually told to take antivirals daily that's why i first started taking yeah daily right i was told to take them um and i actually wasn't having outbreaks for the first i had one outbreak and then 
I spent about three months with this medication, and then I spent three months having no outbreaks at all. Um, it wasn't until after my surgery that I started having regular outbreaks around my cycle. So now I've, I started actually taking um, acyclovir, which is twice a day, right? I had a little bit of symptoms. I got over it. I'm definitely not psychotic <laughs> at this point, And I found that that's sort of what works for me right now, right? Um, but I will say that I don't see my medication as a long-term situation. Um, I see it as sort of like a short-term get-over-a-hump situation. Um, and, and I think you should actually absolutely trust your doctors and get so doctors have saved my life right but it, the thing is is that we just have to remember that there is a power structure and a hierarchy and capitalism and all sorts of things that are tied up into this and that you know uh, us making the best decisions for us really is the most the most important part so i think motivation is is part of it right like i was just told to be on it and then i was on this drug that made me psychotic yeah uh so there was some challenge after I shared your post about uh, different articles that were out talking about the uh, relative time that passed between when a person was diagnosed and treated and then developed these symptoms of psychosis, I believe. And right. so I want to present, I want to put these few things on the table, right? Uh, one, you are a therapist. Two, you had just had a surgery, um, a major surgery, which is like a major trauma on the body. So this could have influence on um, how your body responds to the herpes virus, as well as medication. Like there are so many factors here as well. Um, and you're not the first person. There are two people who've presented me with this uh, that they went crazy. That was their language. Like after I took this medication, yeah. I went crazy. And before hearing your experiences, the only thing that I had prior to that was that the constant, you know, you take this pill every day, every day you look at that bottle, it is a reminder of whatever trauma is associated or whatever uh, your beliefs are about herpes and how you present now that you have herpes symptoms and you have to take this medicine every day, that could send someone into a state of anxiety, depression, and just trigger them. So this was where I went into the discussion thinking, oh, okay, you have this constant reminder of something that was unpleasant and it was triggering for you and now you're not in a very good mental health space. So for you being someone who you are a therapist, like what what's your take on that between um, being triggered and then actually being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, impacted? Yeah, I mean, I think that it can go both ways that, you know, not only can it feel like safety, it can feel like safety, um, as well as be a reminder of trauma. And I really think that just depends on the person, right? What kind of meaning do they make out of taking the pill every day? I don't think there's like a, a straightforward answer to that. Everyone's mind works a little bit different. Everybody has a different perception of what they're taking this medication for or what that medication means to them. Um, but I think that it's definitely worth investigating, um, you know, uh, taking a look and recognizing 
why are we taking this medication? What is my motivation? Do I feel good about this? Do I not feel good about this? It's in the investigation where you really get the information. And if you find it hard to sit there and investigate, that's information too, right? Why are we running? Why are we avoiding? Um, so, so I think like sitting with it and investigating it, it can really give you more information about, you know, whether it, it's good or bad because good and bad are subjective. Yeah. Uh, I've got hell happening right now. I, this is very yeah, random because it's like 50 something degrees right now. And it's not just that soft rain. Okay, I'm glad you can't hear it because it's driving yeah. me nuts. And I'm like, oh, I hope this isn't coming through the I've podcast. Got, uh, <laughs> I've got these noise canceling bows, fancy bows, and I can't hear it. So All I right. Think you're okay. Okay, cool. So we'll just push through the conversation. And if it's unbearable, then we can pick up where we left off and re record or something. Sure. But um, I'm curious to know how has your diagnosis, how have your symptoms impacted your sex work? So, so I think that 
it's twofold. I feel really blessed because I've been sort of managing my life in this way for quite some time already that it doesn't feel like a huge lifestyle change. Um, but I can say that I still feel the social stigma and, you know, still doesn't feel like I still get that rush, you know, um, upon disclosure and, and things of that nature. Absolutely. Okay. And then, um, what kind of therapist are you? So I work at a queer private practice. I work with both individuals and couples, mostly with narrative and psychodynamic, uh, techniques, um, yeah, I work with um, I work with, with individuals who are exploring identity, um, dealing with disability, um, you know, dealing with all kinds of regular life issues and issues that you know are specific to the uh, queer community. Okay, has your identity, has your career more so impacted the way that you've dealt with your pro- your diagnosis or has it been like your life experience? What do you feel like is the most useful to you as you've navigated and are navigating stigma of having an HSV diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think everything that I've done has really um, supported me in, in managing this. Definitely lived experience. I honestly feel like sitting strong in your identity. If I if I had to think about the one thing that really helps me, and that's the fact that you know I'm okay with me. I've already had to do a lot of life navigating. Who am I? Right? How do I relate to people? All of these things. Knowing all these things about yourself can help you stand firmly in who you are. And when you stand firmly in who you are, then it doesn't mean as much when someone is in front of you not reciprocating or validating or doing whatever you expect them to do. I love that answer because it had the word identity in it. And identity validation, like I... I'm a firm believer now that self-care is not bath bombs, going for a walk, working out, drinking, buying a bottle of wine. I think that a more accessible and universal form of self-care is actually identity care. And someone put me on to someone that I've heard the name, but I haven't been familiar with their work. uh, Audrey Lord, who wrote the quote. I wrote the quote down and I said I was going to start looking at her work. Um, But what she expressed was that self-expression is like a revolution. I'm not going to butcher it. I'll put the quote in the, uh, maybe I just need to write it down. Like, I don't know if you ever watched the Simpsons. Yeah. Oh yeah. What, what's the book say? Is there a quote? Is there a quote? This one's, I don't know. I'm not sure what book you're referring to. Like Audrey Lord has many books. It's just a quote. Um, this is Sister Outsider. Um, I also have the Cancer Journals. That's okay. also a great one that, um, that I have here. It's a quote um, on self-care. Is amazing. I, it's a quote on self-care for sure. And I, I yeah, I'll, I wrote it in the last podcast episode. And I think I just need to kind of like write it out over and over again so that when I reference her, I can get it right. Uh, but yeah, it's more about expression, discovery, exploration, and experience of your identities. It's about those yeah. kinds of things. Um, 
one way that I discovered this was I've been on hiatus for four or five months of interviewing people on something positive for positive people. And during that break, I was like applying for grants, looking for funding, trying to do the business aspect of what it means to run a nonprofit organization. And I was probably burning myself out more over that four months than I ever had throughout the almost five years now of hosting the podcast. And what I realized when I started back podcasting was, damn, like, I don't get burnt out from this. This is identity care. This is self-care. This is identity validating to be able to connect with people in this way and have moments of vulnerability and this kind of exchange that has a purpose behind it more so than me pursuing the business side. Like, I'm not a fucking business person. I'm probably the least professional person you'll ever come across. But I think that mm, because of that... But professional is a subjective word. And yeah. I would say that business and professionalism aren't always the same thing. Okay, well, we'll, we'll go with that then. Business and professionalism <laughs> aren't always the same thing. But like those things, those like reaching out to people and filling out these forms and like trying to present a case like this is suicide prevention, identity validating, STI minimization, mental health, uh, STD prevention, integrated platform to have to explain so many different ways in a way that aligns with people who are giving out money was fucking daunting. Like that, that on a regular basis will kill me far faster than just, hosting this podcast (laughs) whoever will but that's what i mean when i say like identity validation if i'm someone who identifies as a podcaster and i'm not podcasting i'm slowly eating away at my soul because i'm not doing that thing that aligns with me so my question to you now uh given your overlapping identities what does identity validation self-care expression look like for you great question great question So, um, I think that you're right. Self-care isn't just taking a bath and eating chocolate or going shopping. I think it can be. Um, I really think it depends on the mind you do it with. Absolutely. Um, you can take a vacation and if you're in a shitty mood, you're fighting with your partner or whatever, a vacation's going to suck. You could take it, you could not have a vacation, you could be, have a staycation sitting at home and have the best time ever, right? Um, just sort of depends on the mind you bring to it. So I do believe that, that self-care is actually self-parenting. Go on. Um, so, you know, we, a lot of our relational patterns are built from uh, an early developmental year or early developmental years and how we sort of related to our parents or our caregivers at the time uh, really defines a lot and how we sort of relate now so it's this idea of as we get older we start replaying these situations and trying to basically have a different a different conclusion or or a different resolution to sort of the same event over and over again, which is quite madness. So, um, you know, that that's why we're, we're, we feel like we're not getting anywhere or why we feel stuck or why we feel unlovable or not worth it. Right. And so if we start, um, like parenting ourselves, doing self parenting talk, so doing the good self talk, um, you know, it might look different to everyone. Some people, maybe it's journaling, 
Um, I think there's definitely benefit in moving your body. Um, I'm not sure if, if you've read The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. I'm actually in sessions with Bessel van der Kolk himself talking in a small group uh, every week for the next year. Um, and so I think that paying attention to what we're doing somatically is self-care. Self-care is checking in versus checking out. Damn. And that's Hey, that's, hey, that's the episode okay. title. That's the episode title. And I got you. I got you right there. So during that time period, I wasn't hosting this podcast. I was recording a podcast. It was kind of like an out loud journal for me. So I'm still getting the practice of podcasting, but it was just me talking out loud. And that got like at most 11 downloads, but it wasn't at all about the downloads to me. So to go from that and then to come back to this one, it's got a thousand downloads over the course of a week or whatever. Like it doesn't feel any different 1000 or one they sure. don't feel any me, different let, yeah let me propose propose a different scenario Ooh, give it to okay me. so if you're a runner and you identify with running eventually your legs are going to stop working not everything is impermanent anything external particular is impermanent right our and, and we can talk about ableism. Ableism is this idea that like we're good and then when people get old or sick people, that's not going to be us, but it will be us. So, um, and that can happen at any time. And me being chronically ill and being in debilitating pain for 10 years throughout my, my 30s, I can say that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a dancer. I was a power lifter. I was an Olympic weightlifter. Right. There, there are things I can't do anymore. Probably, you know, there, there are ways that my life and my career and my identity were very much challenged because I couldn't do the things that I really wanted to do. And this is sort of goes into this talk of, you know, identity in terms of HSV2 or one or genital herpes, because are we defining our, our identity and our worth on our sexual partners? Right? What are we holding? How are we holding our identity? Right? When your identity is stuck on something outside, that thing is going to change. Our bodies are going to change. Right? Everything changed. We're not the same person we were. You look at a photograph of you and you're six years old, and that's certainly not the same person that you are now. So, you know, this idea of identity and, and parenting or reparenting, self parenting, it's all about are you going to be okay? And accept wholeheartedly whatever arises. You're mm. going to sit in your identity whatever arises. All right. What, so, then no matter what. So that was that was very good, challenging. If you identify as a runner, your legs stop working. If I identify as a podcaster and my voice goes out. Uh, if you identify as a bodybuilder and you just can't lift weights anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So there's something there that's consistent in... A need for expression that comes out through perhaps the use of what we have available to us right right so mm-hmm. even if that thing is taken away from us that we use to express whatever it is uh, that's in us our energy our spirit whatever it is that you choose to believe in uh, that 
self-expression comes out as it may have started as a bodybuilder but then it went into dancing and after dancing it might go into writing it might go into journaling it might go into something else whatever it is it's going to express itself so our role in the self-care identity care checking in versus checking out is seeing where whatever that is within us that passion that fire can be released and expressed and experienced. So for me right now, it's my voice, right? And when my voice goes out, is it gonna be in my something else? Now, when all outlets are perhaps taken away from, I guess I just die. Like, I don't know, what do we do do then? Getting into sort of some existential stuff, I should disclose that I am a Buddhist, so I do believe in, um, you know, that that we're we're not necessarily cease when we actually, you know, pass away from this body. But I, I do think that you know there is, yes, we will find different outlets. We will find different outlets. But I guess what I'm saying is that if you can identify with the root of that right regardless if there is an outlet or not right so we have the reason why we need outlets is because we want to be seen we want to be heard so once we can start witnessing ourselves and seeing ourselves we can sort of fulfill some of that need that we're getting externally hey man why are you attacking me like that <laughs> why you do me like that <laughs> you just put me on this is solely my this is solely my opinion i mean take it or leave it no. You gave me an outlet to talk, so. <laughs> and then you flipped it on me. <laughs> all right, all right. So that was very, and, and I felt something there. I felt something in just feeling what you were saying, not just hearing you, but absorbing that into my nervous system. Um, because being able to witness yourself, being able to express and experience yourself, like without the need of external validation or approval, like. I have no idea what that looks like. What does it look like for me to give myself approval? How can um, people whose identities have been so interconnected with their sexuality and their ability to perform with their genitals and merge genitals with another person, like uh, someone who gets an SCI diagnosis has that identity just completely shattered and now you're on the journey of, all right, who am I? How do yeah. you begin to go from so heavily I having yourself validated externally by other people or in your performance or if you're an athlete with your statistics, whatever it is, how do you go from that to beginning to be able to just witness yourself? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a one right way. Um, I, I don't think I could answer that. Um, I think that it's a, a process and that process isn't linear. I also think it's, you know, a lifelong process. Um, there's no destination to arrive to. I wasn't witnessing now, but I am witnessing, I wasn't witnessing before, but I am witnessing, you know, in the moment maybe, but nothing, nothing static. So, um, okay. I mean, how do you do it? You have to sort of figure that out. That's, that's your work. So we got to figure it out. No, no one can figure it out for you. You got to have to figure it out. We got to break some shit. That's what I'm hearing. Hey, if you're a runner, all yeah, right, what happens I, when you can't use your legs anymore? Or if you're a writer, what happens if your fingers like do this thing, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, of course we use accessibility. 
silly options that we have. We do workarounds, you know, it's not just black and white, like we are and we aren't. But I think that it's 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 just worth doing the investigation, you yeah. know. Um, I, I've also been a fitness trainer for quite some time. And one thing that I talk about in sessions is that, you know, when we're working out, a lot of people work out to punish themselves. I, or some people might work out because they think it's self-care because they want to see a result of what they might look like later. And I would propose that we work out, right, to build awareness. We're building awareness in our body. There's no destination to reach because bodies are ups and downs. I would say the same thing with our mental health. Right, there is no destination to reach. There's ups and downs. Sometimes we, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't even know how we feel. All we have to do is start like arriving there for ourselves, and it may look different. How you want to check in with yourself is going to be different than how someone else wants to check in with themselves. Um, you know, I mentioned like journaling or you know meditation or you know I could say all these like quintessential cliche things. It could be anything though. It's about your own. Wow, what you. makes you tick? What makes what resonates with you? What allows you to sit in that discomfort of being inside and looking within? Create safety. I, I talk about with fitness, we're creating. We we want to have proper form. We have to have boundaries so that we can work out right and not hurt ourselves. We have to do the same thing. That's what self parenting is. We think of boundaries as these. Oh, I tell somebody what they're supposed to do in order to keep me safe. But the thing is, you have to internally figure out what you're supposed to do to keep you safe. How can you keep yourself safe? Play with it. And it's not all. It, it sounds like work, and it is work. But how can we be playful while we do it? Because if you're beating yourself up the whole time. You're not going to get anywhere. Mm. You have to leave room for flexibility. You have to leave room for malleability. You have to leave room for making mistakes, just for seeing what happens, for being curious. Ooh, preach. <laughs> um, I would like to know if there's anything that you would like to speak on that hasn't been spoken on, or if there's something that um, you would like for me to hold space for here for you to put out into the world? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, oh, I got more stuff we can talk about, but yeah, I just want to make sure because anything I talk about, yeah, we'll, no, we'll I don't, talk I don't 10 have minutes. Anything <laughs> I mean, I think what we're talking about is great. I love talking about identity work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love talking about sex. I love talking about sex work. I love talking about relational patterns. So yeah. I'm here for all of it. All right. Uh, you did mention, I thought it was interesting that you just, mentioned that you're trans i recently saw a video on instagram that just said i'm trans not a trans man not a trans woman i wish there were more representation of being just trans uh does that say does that is there anything there for you to speak on because this is the first i'm hearing it and i never thought about it it actually really it, it expanded my perspective significantly sure yeah so um i identify as non-binary which means I really don't feel binary in either way, right? Woman or man. Um, if I was a trans man, I feel like that is leaning more heavily into a binary. I do consider myself a little trans masculine leaning, um, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a trans man per se um, because I don't think I stand firmly in just that binary. Um, you know, I also sometimes feel like a woman um and i like to be able to walk that line honestly i i really i'm a libra i don't want to make any decisions um <laughs> so uh, sitting in the 
I think that actually abolishing the binary is what we need in terms of gender representation or gender sort of abolition is what we need. Um, Forget fuck feminism. Feminism, by now I'm saying fuck feminism, what I mean is like the word has a lot of connotation to whiteness, to cisness, to a lot of other things. So I'm thinking more along the lines of gender abolition, right? So if I say that I'm trans, and not all non-binary people identify as trans, but I do. I'm definitely not cis, right? People are not questioning their gender identity the same way that I am. And I may be experienced, I may like, honestly just be realizing that people don't question their gender as much as I do. But that's why I, I identify as trans, right? And not a trans man, um, because I don't consider myself leaning heavily into the binary of man. And there's absolutely nothing wrong. If you like your binary gender, that's great. I'm, I'm, I think, but I think that everyone should be able to uh, flow freely between the two and have that option. So yeah, I, I think that, I wonder if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, you mentioned being Buddhist or you practice Buddhism. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you in the yoga meditation i've been a yoga instructor okay so maybe you got to the point of this so i just completed a 300 hour teacher training and in depth it presented a lot of it was uh well it was just trauma-informed yoga teacher Mm. training so we dove more into the philosophy of yoga and i remember there was a portion on i I say i remember like it didn't just happen uh we had a segment on gender and the representation Mm. of gender and uh, mythology with the gods and how there would be gods that present as masculine or feminine but mm-hmm. when they presented themselves on earth they showed up as whatever representation was needed in that moment so if a man presenting right. God and I'm using air quotes as I say man presenting God came down to earth and needed to present as a woman they would be able to do that if they needed to present as a man, whatever it took to get the job done, that's how they present it. And so when I'm looking at like myself as a cisgendered man, right, I present more masculine traits, but I know that I have the feminine aspects to me and I don't consider that to be something that's like, oh, Courtney's acting like a woman or womanly. It's a matter of like, instead of me talking or leading, being able to listen and support, like it's a matter of stepping in and out of that. And the way that the gods did it, there was no like assignment of gender. There was no differentiation. It was a matter of, I need to get this thing done and I need to express in this way to get the thing done. So there was a fluidity to it. It wasn't like necessarily a this or that, like, oh, I can't handle this. So I'm going to send the God that has breasts down to handle this situation. I'm going to go do it myself. And there's no, no one's looking at the God differently uh, for shortening their hair, growing a beard for whatever reason versus wearing a little bit less clothes and shaking their hips, right? Yeah, I mean, the idea of the gender binary just is really intact to enforce the patriarchy and that really comes with colonization imperialism, right? Whiteness, um, you know, prior to, you know, we have, there's indigenous population that you know believe in two spirits right two spirit individuals that's the word i was Um, looking for (laughs) yeah that's that's even that's before all of this right um you know the whole idea of of you know there, there were no hard 
lines until, you know, they sort of moved in and created them. Um, so these ideas aren't new. Yeah, these ideas aren't new. They're very old, and they're just now being recognized again because people have been erased and silenced. Yeah. Trans people have been erased and silenced, particularly trans people of color. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I like that, you know, this, it's not new. It's been around. We're only just now hearing about it because of, uh, let's say, accessibility of information and being able to communicate at a much faster pace and being able to um, share and express our identities and also alongside the bravery of people who do speak up and express themselves and choose to step into the space of putting themselves out there as like a beacon of hope for people who might feel that same way but may not have their identities reflected back to them in media or wherever it is that people are consuming information or looking to be seen uh, in the way that aligns with how they feel on the inside so that identity validation in that sense is shit man life saving like let's just call it what it is yeah absolutely yeah you know we talk about being seen right the best thing that you can do for uh trans person if you have a trans friend or a colleague or you know community member is to support their identity in any way you can right i i'd say the things that that are people advocate for me when people correct other people on my pronouns like that feels great i don't have to do that work right so that's like a great way to be an ally but i think actually like the best way to be an ally to trans people is to question your own gender and not in a way like am i a man but what things about being a man don't you like Right? What ways are you subscribing to the binary in order to fit in? Right? Which ways are you staying away from, you know, lean, not leaning into the discomfort of? Um, what things are you avoiding about yourself that, you know, maybe don't fit in that alignment? Right? And it could be as simple as, well, as a man, I don't want to be the red breadwinner. Cool. That's that's some non-binary shit, you Ooh, know what I mean? Like, yeah. but, but any, but that it's all connected, right? Um, there's no such thing as like, if we keep men and women separate, right? You're, you're just erasing so many experiences in between. Um, and, and just thinking about what are my own in-between experiences, I feel like are, is like a good way to be an ally. Way to call me out. So uh, episode 202, and we can wrap up here. Um, I'll speak a little bit about... <laughs> I didn't mean to call you out. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I, this is good for me, too. Like Just like I do these for anyone who's listening, the other person who I'm engaging with. And it's also useful for myself just in having these open dialogues like this. Because for me, like identifying as... You know, I still have my own traditional beliefs about what it means to be a man, being able to provide and protect. I'm a big ass dude. I have no issue with protecting, but then providing like I just made this move. I decided to go all in on running this nonprofit, running this podcast. And it's very like I feel that I need to like so much of my identity is in making money and being able to take care of myself, partner, family, whoever, like whoever comes to me. I shouldn't have to go to anybody for anything I need I should just have it or have the means of being able to get it so that's something that I'm now like questioning and like even with um, like partners who make more than me if I'm going on a date or something like it's still I'm gonna pay for things no put your put your wallet away like that kind of shit is where I'm finding myself consistently challenged now and I have to be like 
I need to sit my ass down. I need to just learn to accept or I need to like, I, I recognize where this is coming from. It's from a place of this masculinity, toxic masculinity or whatever, patriarchal capitalism or whatever it is that we want to say. But you saying to like challenge those, uh, your own gender identity, when you said that, that was immediately where I went inside my head. So thank you for that. This is how I'll be challenging myself and hopefully becoming better. Um, do you have anything to add to that? We got about four minutes before I got to wrap this up. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say that, like, I, I feel like I gave a lot of my opinions, but I've been influenced by so many other people and that, you know, people like you, right. People, um, that you can reach out to on the internet who are, you know, having quote unquote radical ideas, um, there's so many, so many people that have influenced me, particularly people of color, and and I, I just want to like thank you for offering this space because it's in the conversation that we can sort of move or make a shift in the stigma, a shift in the way we heal to heal ourselves, not just medically but but mentally as well. And um, and I'm certainly not doing it by myself. I claim none of these ideas of my own. Uh, these are all ideas that I've adopted from my lived experience of just living with people um so um yeah thanks for the space and and you know i hope that we can do more of this connecting and more of this sharing um because that's how we all grow yeah do you want people to follow you on instagram or no (laughs) all right (laughs) it's all right (laughs) well um last question i have for you sexual health is mental health what are you what are your thoughts on that statement 100 percent sexual health is mental health I mean, it's, it's, um, we are all, all of our parts are there to be looked at. Um, we hold identity in all of our parts and to think that we don't have a part that is sexual, even if that identity is asexual is, is, um, you know, sort of, of not looking at our full selves. So I do think that sexual health is mental health, um, no matter how you identify, it's really important um, for us to have that uh, exploration phase and uh, feel good about how we identify uh, in our sexuality. And I can really, that, like we said, that identity piece, sexuality is part of our identity. And um, regardless of the sexuality, like that we feel like is closely aligned to us. So um, yeah, I think that, that it's important for us to look at all aspects of ourselves and it's how we can really give a holistic lens uh, for what's happening in our lives and in our relationship. Nina, thank you so much for your time and for being able to do this. It was just hours. I think it was, what, 12 hours ago when we were texting. I was just woken up. <laughs> I'm rubbing sleep out my eyes and I got your message about uh, your experience. And I was like, hold on, what? Let's let's talk about this. So thank you so much for reaching out and thank you for all of the wisdom that you presented us with here today. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll stay on. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to close this out and then we'll talk a little bit afterwards. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, share this podcast. I am on Venmo and Cash App at Courtney Brame. First, last name, all one word. And you can also find me on social media at H on my chest, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Uh, Yeah, if you want to continue to support... I keep saying our, I say our as if like, it's not just me. Um, I try to make it, the organization seem a lot bigger than it is, but uh, my focus is going to be anchored in the podcast and nonprofits there. I'll still be pointing people in the direction of therapy until we one day miraculously just get a 
buttload of money to where we can pay for people to get therapy and start up these cohorts again. But in the meantime, you know, sexual health is mental health, and that's what we're going to be advocating for, making our way into these spaces in order to support as many people as we possibly can who need these services, who are navigating stigma. Um, Again, like I'm active on social media, Instagram. If you are someone who's been kind of lingering in the background, scared to reach out, I try to keep that as safe of a space as I possibly can. When you reach out to me, I will respond. And uh, whatever it is that you need support with, I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. Till next time, stay sex. And this is inclusive to mental health positive.